Why don't you grab your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Earlier in 1 Peter, back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, we came to see how our present salvation is a privileged salvation. God has given believers the greatest privilege of them all, namely salvation, and we should therefore be thankful for it. But God didn't save us just so that we can be appreciative. There's more. God has other purposes. And sometimes, oftentimes, great privilege comes with great purpose. That's something we don't want to lose sight of. Many areas of life, we see this. We see great privilege being accompanied by great purpose. Take judges, for example. We as a society give to judges the great privilege of being able to be interpreters and, and arbiters of the law. Now, that's huge. They don't sit above the law, but we do entrust to them the privilege of judging between right and wrong. When you think about it, judges actually have the power to, to sentence a person to life in prison, even death. But that privilege or that power comes with great purpose. What is their purpose? Why do we as a society give judges their position? You know, it's so that they can uphold justice and equality. That they can defend the weak, the helpless, the innocent. That they can punish the, the wrongdoer, the criminal, evil. Their great privilege comes with great purpose. Sometimes, though, judges lose sight of their purpose. Their power goes to their head. An L.A. County judge was removed a few years back for such an abuse of power. A woman came into court just to contest a seatbelt violation. That's all it was. She claimed that she was actually not the motorist who received the ticket. The judge, though, thought she was lying. And so he had the bailiffs jail her. He never read her her new charges. He never informed her of her right to eternity, her right to challenge. And so as a result, she sat in jail for two days until another judge heard her case and released her. And just imagine that. Imagine that if that were you. You go into court just trying to appeal a traffic ticket, and you get thrown into jail because some judge abused his power, and there's nothing you can do about it. For judges, some call this the black robe disease. It's where their great power and privilege goes to their head. They lose sight of their real purpose. The same, unfortunately, can happen with cops. Although a very dangerous and very important line of work, police officers do have some great privileges. They're allowed to carry weapons. They're above certain laws. They have the ability to detain others. Again, when you think about it, we have a lot of freedom in America be thankful for, but a police officer essentially has the power to take away your freedom. If an officer wants to arrest you, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But why do we as a society give police officers so much power and privilege? Well, there's a purpose, and the purpose is to protect and serve. Protect and serve, that's their purpose. They don't have their privileges just for the fun of it. We don't let them carry guns for target practice. It comes with a purpose, and that is to protect the innocent, serve the people, apprehend the criminals. Yet when policemen start operating for different purposes, they abuse their privileges, and they get off track. And this is when we hear of the occasional police corruption scandal. 
And not too long ago, two NYPD cops were convicted of racketeering, obstruction of justice, and eight counts of murder. And why is that? Well, it's because while they worked for the NYPD, they also worked for the mafia. You see, they were on, they were members of the organized crime homicide unit, but they were also members of organized crime. And in reality, primarily they were moles for the mafia and hitmen infiltrating the NYPD. Now here they had this great privilege of serving as officers, but yet they certainly were not fulfilling the purpose behind that privilege of protecting and serving the people. You know, like judges, like officers, the church of Jesus Christ has been given has been given great privileges by God, only more so. And these privileges are wonderful to behold. They should cause us to give thanks to God. But these privileges also come with a great purpose, an intended God-given purpose. And church is not to repeat the mistakes of others and squander her privileges while ignoring her purpose. God has given the church these privileges so that she might fulfill her purpose. So so what are these? What is the church's purpose that God has given? And, And then what are these privileges that God has also given to drive this purpose? This morning we're going to find out with our text today, chapter 2. 9 through 10 in 1 Peter. Peter is concluding a section that has been talking about the results or the consequences of salvation. He's finishing that up. Salvation comes with many blessings. Yet these at times place demands on believers. The privileges the church has in Christ, they come with a purpose. And this morning we want to find out what those are, the privileges and the purpose of the church. And to start off, read along with me our text for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. He says, By you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. With this culminating passage in 1 Peter, as ending this section, before we shift gears and move on to the next section in the letter, we want to identify from this passage the privilege and the purpose of the church. Plain and simple, the privilege and the purpose of the church so that you may not squander your privilege and deviate from your purpose. So that's what we're going to cover this morning, the privilege and the purpose of the church. Start off with, number one, the church's privilege. The church's privilege. Peter begins, verse 9, with this strong contrast, he says, but you, but you... Now, last week we saw the fate of the unbelieving who are destined to judgment because of their unbelief. Look back at verse 7. He says, This precious value then, it's for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, 
He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they, the unbelievers, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you see that contrast? But, but you, you're not like that. Unbelievers, as we saw last week, they are shamed, they are stumbled, they are sentenced because of their rejection of Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone, the only means of salvation. But you, verse 9, you who have accepted Christ and, and believed in him, you are those who instead receive great privilege. And five privileges are mentioned in verses 9 through 10 if you add them all up. And these privileges apply to every individual believer. But, but more than that, they apply to the church as a whole. These are holistic privileges. These are corporate privileges, church privileges. Each of these five is drawn from Old Testament reality that applies to the church. We'll talk about this as we go along. But we want to start and look at these five special privileges of the church as we're getting through first the church's privilege. So number one, what are these? Number one, you are a chosen race. Number one, you are a chosen race. I, I didn't get too creative with the outline here. We're just going straight from the text. Number one from verse nine, you are a chosen race. The word translated race, genos, can be translated in a couple of different ways. But the idea of race in scripture is just a way to group people according to a common ancestor, a common lineage, a common life, common heritage. And today, a human race is defined as a group of people with certain common features that distinguish them from other groups of people. Sounds pretty straightforward. And today, anthropologists identify three primary races. There's Caucasian, Asian, and black. Yet what separates these races, when you think about it, it's largely superficial and subjective. Now today, scientists have found out that the different races, traditionally they've been so separated, but all the different races in the world, they share 99.99 plus percent of genetic information. And 99.99 plus the same. That's virtually identical. Uh, yet what separates mankind is, over the years has been something as trivial as skin color. Even if everyone on the planet looked the same, though, man would still find a reason to divide. You see, skin is not the problem. Sin is the problem. It's the sin problem that causes these divisions. Sin naturally divides people. And then man plus sin does not equal unity. It equals division. And, in fact, since people do not look the same, man has really divided some estimate that there are over 24,000 ethnic groups in the world. And there's only roughly 200 countries, so that, that's a lot of further division. You know, language, ethnicity, religion, caste, culture, education, politics, customs, behavior. It seems like man will divide over anything. But here's the thing, here's the point. God is doing something amazing with the church. He calls it here, a race, a one race, a chosen race. The church is a race. How can this be, though? I mean, have you seen the demographics of the church? It seems like there's people from all races. So, so how can they be called a single race, a chosen race? 
Well, what makes them similar? Well, think about it. Everyone in the church has a common ancestor, Adam. Everyone has a common father, God. We have a common savior, Christ. We have a common heritage, the new birth. And really, we're all related. We're all brothers and sisters in the church. I mean, talk about a unity. And so God, through the new birth, has created a new spiritual race that transcends trivial divisions like ancestry, languages, culture, even skin color. Participation in the church, it doesn't obliterate these racial distinctions or customs. They can still be there. But it does remove them as a source of division. The point is, in the church, you should not divide over these things anymore. We come together as one, one chosen race. All races are incorporated into one through Christ in the church. Not all churches get this right, though, sadly, even today. Just last month, there was a church in Mississippi that refused to marry a black couple in their church because they had never done so before and they didn't want to break that tradition. That's pretty terrible. That's really not Christ-like at all. And and the church should not be like that. The point is that we're we're one race in Christ, a chosen race, a spiritual race. And there should be a unity there. And indeed, we we see a beautiful unity amongst all the races in heaven. In Revelation, the Apostle John gets a glimpse of heaven. He sees people worshiping. And who does he see there worshiping? Revelation 7, 9 says, people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language. That's what he says. All there as one worshiping God. doesn't mean they all lose their differences. It means they no longer separate them. They come together as one. And they're all there because God has chosen them. He says you are not just a race, you're a chosen race. In verse 9, a chosen race. Peter began his letter with the doctrine of election. We covered that. How God has chosen us to be a part of his new family, his new race. That's something to thank God for. And you can be sure of this. If God wasn't choosing us, we would never come together as one on our own. Like I said, apart from God's intervention, there's no salvation, there's no unity. Mankind would never unite apart from God's choosing. So this is the first privilege the church enjoys. You are a chosen race. Through Christ, we get to enjoy a profound and meaningful union with with humanity, with all the other races in the world. The race of Adam, in a way the world can never know. So first, you are a chosen race. Second now, second privilege the church enjoys. You are a royal priesthood, also from verse 9. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. This can mean two different things, actually. It can mean either that we are a priesthood which belongs to a king, or we are a priesthood which rules. And actually, there's truth to both. I think both are actually intended as two shades of meaning here. First, we are a priesthood which belongs to a king. In the ancient world, kings would often have their own regiment, their own entourage of priests. There would be priests surrounding the king. They would serve God and the king. They were royal priests. They served the king. And this fits our bill. Christ, he's the king. 
But as we learned last week, he has made all believers to be his and his priests in his kingdom. 1 Peter 2.5, we belong to him, we serve him. And last week, we, we learned the function of our priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, is to offer up spiritual sacrifices of worship to God. But belonging to Christ, the king, we are a royal priesthood. So that, that's the first way. But secondly, though, in, in another sense, we are a royal priesthood in that we reign with Christ. Not, that's not an error to say. We reign with Christ. We're not the king, but we reign with him. Revelations 5.10. It says, you, you have made them, believers, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It says that over and over in Revelations. We're a kingdom, we're priests, and we will reign with, under, but with Christ. You know, back in the time of Israel's kings, the office of king and the office of priest were, were totally separate. They were not to be joined. In fact, God actually forbid it that the king should ever function as priest and that, or that a priest should ever function as king. Remember King Uzziah. He was king. He tried to, he stormed into the temple. He tried to take over the priesthood and function as a priest. And so God judged him and struck him with leprosy until the day he died. Kings and priests were not to be the same. They were kept separate. But the Messiah was envisioned as being different, as coming as both king and priest. In the book of Zechariah, he envisions the Messiah as coming as king and priest, as a priest on his throne, Zechariah 6.13. And indeed, Jesus did come as king and priest. How can that be? How is that possible? Well, if you want to figure that out, you read Hebrews 7. We're not going to cover it this morning, but it explains it there. But Jesus came, he united both offices into one person, priest, king, one. And by virtue of our union with him, we share in both. That, that's our privilege. You know, on our own, of course, we would have nothing to do with being a priest before God. On our own, we would have nothing to do with being a ruler of any sort. But through him, we do. Through Christ, God has given us this dual privilege of being a royal priesthood to serve him and to honor him. And that's our second privilege. And I think the second privilege of the church is one we definitely take for granted. And when was the last time you thought of yourself as being part of the church, as being a royal priesthood? Probably in a while, maybe never. It's true, though. Although part of it is a future reality, even now, though, you need to remember, God looks to you, even now, to be functioning as that royal, holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2.5, offering up to him, even now, sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices of, of worship and praise to him all the time. So, so remember that. Remember that God looks to you to worship him even now as this royal priesthood. It's true. That's our second privilege. You are a royal priesthood. Third privilege is this, you are a holy nation. No surprise, it's just coming from verse 9. You are a holy nation. And this third privilege continues the pattern of Peter drawing off of Old Testament imagery. And specifically here, he's drawing off of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. God is just about to give the Ten Commandments. He's got all of Israel assembled there, Mount Sinai. And first, before he gives them the commandments, he tells them their privilege. 
the privilege he's giving to them. Exodus 19:5 through 6. He says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And that's right here being referenced in our text. God created for himself a nation, a unique nation. He gave that nation great privileges, and then he tasked that nation with, with a great purpose. The purpose of honoring and declaring his name. And God has done the same today with the church. God has made the church now into a holy nation of sorts and has given them a purpose. I mentioned earlier, there's roughly 200 nations in the world. To be more precise, the United Nations identifies 193 nations in the world, plus Vatican City, plus 12 other states. It's kind of hard, though, to make a list of all the nations in the world, though, because not everyone agrees on which nations are legitimate. For example, North Korea does not recognize South Korea. South Korea does not recognize North Korea. Pakistan does not recognize Armenia. 33 countries do not recognize Israel. Almost no one recognizes Palestine, and so on. One thing's certain, though, you definitely won't find the church listed under the UN's Table of Nations. You're not going to find the church there, but, but it's true. The church of Jesus Christ, not talking about a building or the institution, I'm talking about the people, the, the followers of Christ. The church forms a holy nation. Holy here denotes the church's separation from the world and separation unto God. It's a holy nation. The church is a set-apart people. And here, they're called a nation. Citizenship in this nation transcends borders, transcends passport. It doesn't matter if your passport reads USA or Canada or wherever. Only citizens of heaven belong to this spiritual nation, this heavenly country. But it's open to anyone. Anyone can go there if they believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior by faith and trust. The church then incorporates, it assimilates all nationalities into one. It doesn't remove national distinctions, but it just removes them as a source of division and we're incorporated into one new holy nation. This is our privilege. Getting to be a part of God's nation, his holy nation, set apart unto him, used for his purposes, united together with other believers from around the world. And it's amazing to think about. You get to heaven, we're part of this this new nation, but we're going to be there with all these nationalities, people we never even heard of, never seen before, but have an instant unity with. And no group of people in the world, no nation in the world, is so blessed by God, is so privileged by God, and so enjoys this unity that the church knows. It's our third privilege, being a holy nation. You are a holy nation. Number four, you are a possessed people. You are a possessed people. Also from verse 9, here we learn that we are a people possessed or owned by another person. That's what we're talking about. We're, we're owned. We're a people for God's own possession. Verse 9, he says, you are a people 
for God's own possession. Again, this is drawing off of Exodus 19.5, but it's also drawing off of Deuteronomy 7.6, where it says, for you, God's talking to the people, he says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God possesses for himself a unique and distinct people, which he has acquired for a price. And the price, of course, was Christ's own blood on the cross. According to Revelation 5.9, Jesus, through the cross, purchased for God, with his blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what he did. He purchased from everyone a people for his own possession. And what a privilege this is. You want to be purchased by God. That's something you want. Because that comes with forgiveness of sins and, and reconciliation and redemption and eternal life and a true soul satisfaction. That, that comes when God purchases you. When you place your faith in him. In fact, you're never free. You're never truly free until you are enslaved to Christ. You're never free from sin until you are possessed by him. This becomes all the more significant and all the more special as a privilege when you read verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Here Peter, just like Paul in Romans 9, he uses this Old Testament reference from the book of Hosea to speak of the New Testament church as being the new people of God. Something interesting, though, in this passage in Hosea, back where it originally came from, it's speaking only of Israel. Gentiles aren't anywhere to be found in Hosea. When God's talking like this, he's talking about Israel and Israel's future. So it kind of makes you wonder, why, why then do Peter and Paul both apply this to the church? And talking about Gentiles coming into the church, I thought this was for Israel. Well, let, me, let me refresh your memory on what's going on in Hosea. If you like, you can turn back to Hosea chapter 1. We'll get there in a second, but let me refresh your memory. In the book of Hosea, God had already disowned the northern kingdom of Israel for their unfaithfulness, for their spiritual adultery, going after other gods. The southern kingdom of Judah wasn't far behind at this point. And so God gives to the people a living picture of what he's going to do to them as a result through the prophet Hosea and his wife, Gomer. God tells Hosea, go marry this harlot, this prostitute named Gomer, who pictures Israel. God says, have children with her. And then God gives the children their names. The names, of course, signify the children of Israel and their fate. One child is named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. God will no longer, he's saying, have compassion on the sons of Israel for their waywardness. And then chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Name one child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And God is saying to them, God has rejected Israel from being his privileged people because of their unfaithfulness. That's Hosea 1.9. He says, you're not my people. But it doesn't stop there. You see, immediately after this, in the next verse, chapter 1, verse 10, God informs them that this will not be a permanent rejection. Chapter 1, verse 10 reads, right after he says, you're not my people, he says, yet 
the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. That's still talking about Israel. God has said, you are not my people. He has rejected them and cast them out for their unfaithfulness. They're still under that rejection. But he says there will be a time when they will be the sons of the living God again. This thought is continued in chapter 2, verse 23. So if you're with me, you can turn there as well. God looks forward to the time when they will be his people again. 2.23, he says, I will sow her, Israel, for myself in the land. And I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say to me, you are my God. Study the context. Do it yourself. Gentiles aren't mentioned anywhere. God is still talking to and about Israel. So this has, in the context of Hosea, this has nothing to do with the church or Gentiles. God is making this promise to Israel alone. He's saying, you're not my people, but not forever. There will be a day when you'll be my people again, and I will be your God. So then where do Peter and Paul get off in, in applying this to the church? Well, here's what they understood by way of inspiration through this passage. You see, when God rejected Israel for their unfaithfulness, and they're still under that rejection, what did they become? They became lo-ami, not my people. They became lo-ami, not my people. In essence, Israel became like any other Gentile nation. They became just like one of the other Gentile nations, lo-ami, not my people. But God, in Hosea, he still promises to show them one day mercy. God promises to show them mercy, even though they will be at that time, lo-ami, not my people. And so, uh, wait a second. If God is willing to show people, if God is willing to show mercy on Israel, who is lo-ami, not my people, what is to stop God from showing the same mercy toward other Gentile nations who are also lo-ami, not my people? You see, if God is willing to show mercy on Israel, who had been judged as not my people, why shouldn't God show mercy to other Gentile nations who are likewise not my people? And the answer is nothing. That's the point Peter and Paul make. Nothing is stopping God. In fact, he is now showing mercy on other nations, and he's doing it in the church. That's what they recognize, that these people who were not my people are now becoming his people. You see, everyone is cut off from God in sin. Every nation, every nation fits into the category of lo ami, not my people, Israel included. Israel couldn't cut it under the old covenant. She failed and lost her privileged position. We're talking about privileges. She lost those privileges. But now the only way any nation or any person for that matter can stand before God is by what? It's by God's mercy. That's it. That's the only way any nation will stand. All people and all nations depend <coughs> excuse me, depend on God's mercy to ever be a part of God's people. And God has revealed that mercy in Christ through Christ's work. And now after the cross, God is forming his people, the people for his own possession, by his mercy in the church. 
So the conclusion, though, is that now us, and we're part of those Gentile nations who were once not my people, now we get to say what? That even we are now the people of God. And think about what a privilege this was for those ancient Christians. I mean, back then, the whole world was telling them, you don't belong. You're you're outcasts. You're rejects. You have no place in the earth. But God comes and he tells them, you're mine. You're my people. You're my possession. Yeah, you may not belong in the world, but you belong to me. That's the privilege. That's their privilege. Still, that's our privilege. That's our privilege as well. We belong to God. We are the people of God, the church today, which incorporates all of the nations. This is the privilege that we share too. You are the people of God. And trust me, that's where you want to be. This really ties in with the fifth privilege of the church. They really go together, so I might as well introduce it now. Number five, you have received mercy. Number four, you are a possessed people. But it ties in with number five in verse 10, you will have received mercy. He says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. From the same passage in Hosea. We've largely covered this, but but here God's mercy forms the real foundation for all of the other privileges mentioned. It's all by his mercy. And that's really the greatest privilege we have is being recipients of God's mercy. See, formerly we were cut off from God and we were cut off from all those privileges. It's good to remember at times your former position so that you can appreciate your new position. So formerly, what were we like? We read Ephesians 2 before, Ephesians 2.12. It says, formerly we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, the good old days before our salvation were not good. They were terrible. We were cut off. We had no hope, no God in the world. But God, because of his mercy, gave us this ultimate privilege. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive in Christ, for by grace you've been saved. That's our privilege. This is something to give thanks for. We have received the mercy of God, and through it, Life, hope, and all these other privileges in the church. And it's something you should remember, praise God for, thank him for. The mercy that you've received to bring your own salvation, to bring you into the church, then to shower you with all these other privileges, it all came by his mercy. You have received mercy. Now, before we move on, a little side topic here. I want to address one thing. I said at the beginning, each of these privileges, we've covered the five now, each of them comes from promises originally given to Israel. Each of these five privileges were originally privileges of the nation of Israel. Now think about this, though. The dwelling place of God is not the temple anymore. It's the church. The priesthood, not the Levites anymore. It's the church. The people of God are not the physical descendants of Abraham anymore. It is the spiritual descendants, i.e. the church. The nation, 
is no longer Israel. It is the church, and the people of God overall are no longer Israel. It is the church. So what's the deal here? What has happened to Israel, you might be wondering? What what is the place of Israel? Do they still exist? Do they still have a a purpose? What's going on? I understand some of you, you might not really know what I'm talking about here. You you maybe have studied this a little bit. You know Israel used to be important in the Old Testament, but haven't given much thought. Others, you may have a little more introduction to this issue between the church and Israel. What I want to do now is just, just make a brief comment, hopefully add some clarity to this issue. And what is going on here? How come all these things are being applied to the church that were once for Israel? So first things first. First, you need to understand what God was doing in the Old Testament. You need to understand what God was doing in the Old Testament. God's plan in the Old Testament was not for Israel. God's plan in the Old Testament was for the nations, plural, for the nations. God never intended to choose just one nation and forget all the rest. That was never his plan. Rather, Israel was to be chosen as a special nation with special privileges so that all the other nations might come to know God. God gave them privileges, like we talked about, but those privileges came with a purpose, and that was to declare God to all the other nations. That was their goal. They were to be God's light to the world. This was God's covenant with the nation, that he would use them for his purpose and bless them. This goes back all the way to God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 12:3, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. It's just the nations. It's not just Israel. It's, it's everyone. It's the nations. Always from the beginning. But here's the thing. Over time, Israel was unfaithful to her purpose. She abused her privileges. She committed spiritual adultery. She went after other gods. And Israel's rejection of God climaxed on the cross when the nation actually crucified their own Messiah. And because of that, the nation came under God's judgment, rightly so. She lost all those privileges, lost the privileges. She lost her special purpose to be God's light to the world, and rightly so. The nation became what? just like any other Gentile nation in the world needing salvation through Christ. They became just like another nation. Lo, I mean, not my people. What's God doing now? God is now setting up the church. Get this. This is a huge point. The church is not plan B. church is not plan B. The church is plan A. Israel in the Old Testament was plan A. The church in the New Testament is still plan A. We're still talking about plan A here. The church is not God's backup plan because Israel failed. That's not how it works. No, the unity, the oneness, and the salvation experienced by the church, that's always where God was heading. That's always where he was heading. It's true. Some church realities were mysteries in the Old Testament, like Paul explains in Ephesians 2 and 3, how they didn't understand that In the future, Jew and Gentile would come together as one new man on equal footing in the church. But this is still where God was always headed. Gentile salvation was not a mystery in the Old Testament. And so there's no going back from this plan now. The new covenant has been inaugurated. There's no going back to the old covenant. The new ways have come. There's no going back to the old ways. This is God's plan A. But wait, you may be thinking, does this mean the church has replaced Israel? Not at all. 
Not at all. Any believing Jew in this age finds their place in the church. The early church was made up mostly of Jews. And so the remnant has always been there in the church. But still you're thinking, wait a sec, but what about the nation? Okay, yeah, they can get saved in the church, but what about the nation as, as a national entity? What's going on with them? What about Israel as a nation? Are, are they done with forever? And here's where some Christians disagree. Some say yes, some say no. And we at this, te- we at this church teach that God still does have a plan for Israel as a nation. But understand, understand this, that future will not be separated from the church. You might be thinking, well, how can that be? I mean, nation or, or the church, it's an either or. It's either they're the nation or the church. How can it be both? But it's, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Here's what I mean by that. Some people teach what's called a radical discontinuity between Israel and the church, which means this, they're totally separate. You know, two people, two plans, two purposes, they're just totally separate, no overlap, that just keep them separate for all eternity. Radical discontinuity. Some people teach a radical continuity between Israel and the church, that they're one, one people, one plan, one purpose, no distinction whatsoever. All the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are now given to the church, bar none. We at, these, we at this church teach the middle ground. God has brought Israel and the Gentile nations into one body. That's true. The church incorporates all the nations into one body. And all these nations know a new salvific unity like never before. There's a new unity in the church. However, participation in the church does not obliterate legitimate national or cultural distinctives. Nations all come together as one in the church, but that unity does not destroy their individual personalities, even their individual national roles. It's clear from Revelation 21-22, you look at the eternal state, nations is mentioned three times. Nations are going to play a huge part in the eternal state. But that is not inconsistent with the unity we see in the church. Let me explain it like this, by way of analogy. Think of the Trinity. You've got God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're all one in the Trinity, right? They're one. But does their unity obliterate their personalities, and their different roles. No, no, it doesn't. There's a unity there, but there's also a diversity in roles. Same, same goes with the church. In the church, we have millions of Christians come together as one in the church, right? We're all together as one. But does their unity obliterate their personalities and their different roles? No. See, in the church, there's a unity. There's also a diversity in roles. Same goes with the husband-wife, one-flesh union. There's a unity there, but there's still a diversity in roles. If that makes sense, I argue that the same applies to the church on a national scale. Think about this. The church incorporates all peoples from all nations, but it does not obliterate national distinctives and roles. The church allows for unity in salvation, but diversity in roles, even on a national scale. And God gives different nations different roles, like he did in the Old Testament. Additionally, because we see God making all of these unconditional promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, to have them as a special nation before him forever 
it follows that Israel will be restored as a special nation before God in the future, but they will play a special role in the church, not separate from the church. It's a both and, not an either or. Israel will be restored, but in the church. Think about this verse, though, when it comes to the future of Israel as a nation. You can turn there if you like. In fact, you should. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Just go to Psalms and Proverbs and just start turning to the right, you know, to the right of Isaiah. Jeremiah 31. Pretty significant verse on the future of Israel as a nation before God. Here in Jeremiah 31, God just delivered the promise of the new covenant, which was for Israel and, as we know, for all nations as well. But God is really talking to and about Israel. And look at this promise he makes in Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. I understand that not all Christians agree here, but this is a passage I just can't find a way to reinterpret. I just can't find a way to make this mean something that it, it, it plainly means. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 35. Thus says the Lord, this is God talking, he says, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves war. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36, if this fixed order departs from before me. Stop there. What's he talking about? What, what's the fixed order? It's what he just mentioned. I mean, the sun, the moon, the stars, the waves. I mean, that's the most fixed thing we know about. That's the most consistent thing there is. The sun rising, the sun setting, the stars moving, the, sun, the moon rotating. That's the most fixed thing there is. So God says, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. That's pretty significant. And the point is, look, those things will never stop. God is never going to stop rotating the sun or whatever. And likewise, Israel will never cease being a nation before him forever. And he says the word nation. And you may think, oh, well, you know, in the eternal state, there's no sun. So maybe he's, he's not talking about forever. But look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured. Can they? No. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offsprings of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Yes, they have rebelled. They have been cast out as a nation for the time being, but they will find a role again. Anyway, we could go on. This is a massive topic. I've taken enough time. I hope this suffices for now. Israel's privilege was forfeited because of unbelief. She lost her privilege. She lost her purpose as being God's light to the nations. And now God has given his new covenant people these privileges. He's given them their purpose. Israel can and will find a role in this new covenant people someday in the church. But for now, they're still cut off. Well, it's time to move on. We mentioned this, these privileges. We've looked at five this morning. But there's also this purpose we've talked about, and we want to end with this. The church's purpose, the second part here. We've looked at the church's privilege. Now it's time to finally get to the purpose. What is this purpose we've been talking about? 
God has given us all these privileges. To what end? Back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Sandwiched in between verses 9 and 10 comes this so that statement. And both what comes before and what comes after provide the basis for it. God has given the church all these privileges. Why? He says, so that you, and that's plural there, you all, the church, may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has given you all these privileges so that you would become preachers, all of you. Preaching is not just for the pastor on Sunday morning. It's for all of you each and every day. God wants you to be proclaimers. That's talking about you, not just me here. To proclaim here means to tell, to make widely known. The idea is declaring on the outside what's going on on the inside. I mean, here we are sitting in our building, safe and sound, in our walls, worshiping God on the inside, and that's good. But the world out there is perishing outside these walls. What does God want us to do? Do you think he wants us to stay holed up in our building 24-7? Or to get out and go out and to go and make disciples and to proclaim to those outside about the God who's here inside? That's what you need to do. What do you say? Well, proclaim what? Proclaim the excellencies of him. There's a God focus to this message. You're telling people of God's perfections, his divine power, his mighty acts. People need to know who God is. Holy, loving, just, kind, merciful, vengeful, wrathful, patient, long-suffering. They need to know who he is. They need to know what he's done. Creation, judgment, salvation, redemption, so on. God wants you to tell other people about him and about the gospel because you love him, because you're excited about him. People will naturally talk about what excites them. You know that. People naturally talk about what excites them. Your new parents, they talk all the time about their kids. I remember before we had our daughter, all of my parent friends, they'd always talk about their kids. I found the conversation very boring. Like, I, I really don't care. Now that we have kids, of course, I'm all into it. But back then, like, I didn't care. But people, they talk about what excites them. You see a new movie you love, you, you can't wait to tell someone about it. The day after the Super Bowl, what's everyone talking about? The Super Bowl. Why? Because it excited them. Or, or for the ladies, mostly, I hope. You go shopping, you buy something new, you find that special outfit. What do you do? You go tell people. I don't know why, but it, you do it. I've seen you do it. It's true. You just got to share it. You got to tell people. People talk about what excites them. And the point here is that should be God. God should be your greatest excitement. And so you just want you don't want to tell people about him. You want to talk to other people about him. His excellencies should inspire you and motivate you. Just, just want to tell people. He should be so great and exciting in your eyes that you just can't wait to, to tell someone. Just when the conversation presents itself, you just want to talk about the Lord. But wait, you say, you know, talking about the Super Bowl doesn't get me persecuted. Doesn't get me fired from my job. Doesn't get me thrown out of my family. Talking about Jesus might. That's true. But your excitement for the Lord and your thankfulness 
for the Lord and your trust in the Lord needs to be greater than your fear of man. Now, ultimately, people need to know. They perish without knowing, and you need to tell them. You, you all proclaim. It's for you. Indeed, it was God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, as verse 10 says. Listen to this. Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and then transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God has done for you. What you tell others should be God-centered, but there should be a personal element there. You're telling them about God who has rescued you and taken you from darkness to light. Tell people how you once lived in the darkness. Tell them how your life once was filled with immoralities and, and the worldly pleasures that were empty, though. There is no true soul satisfaction. Tell them how God has called you out of that, though, out of that darkness into his light, into holy living, and tell them about the joy you have now and the satisfaction and the love you have because of this transfer. Tell people what the Lord has done for you. If you remember the story of the man possessed by many demons, Legion, he called himself. Remember that story? This guy was out of control. Clearly this was a guy living in darkness. But Christ called him out of darkness. He called him to light. You remember the story, I trust. Remember what happened after, though? After he was brought from darkness to light? Luke 8, 38 says, The man from whom many demons had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. He's like, I, I want to go with you now. You freed me. You've given me light. I, I want to follow you. You know what Jesus says? He says, no. You, you can't come. Jesus, verse 38, sent him away, saying, verse 39, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And so the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus said, you don't need to follow me. You already are. Go tell people. Go back to where you came from and tell them about how I just saved you from darkness to the light. It's what God wants you to do today. Tell people about Christ, about the gospel. So are you doing this? Are you doing this? What, what are you doing about it? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you even had a God-centered conversation with someone? And who's on your radar? What friends or family members or coworkers do you need to share the gospel with? Who can you identify? Now, how long have you been saying to yourself, I'll share with that person sooner, you know, I'll get around to it sooner or later. When the conversation presents itself, I'll share with them. You've been saying that for years. Today's the day. Now's the time that they may not get another day. And also get prepared. We've talked about purpose. This is your purpose, right? You saw that. This is the church's purpose. Don't you think you should prepare a little for it? Prepare to skillfully tell others about God. How much are you reading about the excellencies of God in Scripture, his works, his character? How well do you grasp the gospel? If you understand the gospel enough to be saved, then you understand it enough to tell someone, even if it's basic. So do that. But at the same time, Grow in your understanding of what God has done through Christ and then be prepared to tell others. And go so far as to even prepare for different situations. I mean, do you know what you would say if you had an hour with someone? Do you know what you'd say if you had five minutes with someone? What if you had five seconds? Are you prepared? God has given you, the church, so many great privileges. And we counted five today. There's more. But today we counted five. 
These privileges come with a great purpose. And it's to tell other people about him. And sure, you can witness to people about how you live, but there comes a time where God tells you, go proclaim. They need to hear. You need to tell. So plan for this, prepare for this, and then do this. Earlier, we heard of judges who squandered their privilege and lost sight of their purpose. We heard of cops who squandered their privilege and lost sight of their purpose. Don't be Christians who do the same. Remember what God has done for you? Remember your privileges. Give thanks for them and then focus on that purpose. Live this way, constantly declaring God to others because you love him and because he loved you. Let's pray. Our glorious Father in heaven, we, we do proclaim your excellencies even now to one another. And what a God you are, we've heard about this morning, who has saved us, chosen us, called us, brought us to yourself, redeemed us through Christ on the cross. This is what you have done for us, Lord, and who you are. You are good, you are loving and just. You're wrathful and vengeful, but at the same time merciful, willing to forgive. You're just, you are love and light. And we praise you. I pray now we would all not just declare your name to one another in the church, but to those outside the church. May we be those who proclaim your name to the nations, that they might get the privilege of being part of your chosen nation, your holy priesthood. Let us take this seriously, our, our purpose. Let us not forget our privileges, though we may take them for granted at times. May we remember and use them to to drive us toward this purpose, to tell people about you. Give us grace in doing this. We want them to know. It's up to you to save them, but you call us to to tell them. So may we busy ourselves with this work as we leave from here. In your name we pray. Amen.